The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very good Monday morning, everybody. I'm Jeff Cutmore, and you're watching a special edition of Squawk Box called Europe Votes. We are live across the continent, bringing together the results of the European parliamentary elections. And as we look at the numbers this hour, it is clear that the centre block has been delivered a blow. We are looking at a fragmented parliament going forward with the Liberals and the Greens putting in a particularly strong showing. The euro holds firm as Europe staves off a popular surge across the continent, despite big wins for the likes of the Brexit party in the UK and the national rally in France. Italy's right-wing Lega party also storms to victory as leader Matteo Salvini claims anti-EU parties are transforming Europe. Not only is the League the first party in Italy, but also Marine Le Pen is the first party in France. Nigel Farage is first in the UK. Therefore, Italy, France, the UK, it's a sign of Europe that's changing. President Trump presses his Japanese counterpart Shinzo Abe to straighten out the trade balance while in Tokyo on a four-day state visit. And in corporate news, CNBC has learned that Fiat Chrysler and Francis Renault are in advanced talks to merge with an official announcement coming soon. So let's kick off our coverage of these European parliamentary elections. We will have a much more fragmented parliament going forward. The centre bloc was delivered a blow. We did see some parties from the right and from the left making gains. But having said that, we now know that at least uh, two-thirds of the gains have gone to parties that do believe in the European project. So as much as we will have a fragmented parliament going forward, the predominant theme will be one that is still very much pro the EU. Now, the Liberals and the Greens made significant gains, and there was also at the political margin some improvement in the showing for the right in France, in Italy, and of course here in the UK. So let's get around continental Europe and give you a look at the breakdown of those numbers. Sylvia is in Brussels for us, Willem is in Turin, and we have Annette in Bremen in Germany. But let's start in Brussels with Sylvia, who's going to knit together the result for us. Sylvia. Good morning, Jeff. Well, the main takeaway is that more Europeans voted in this European election than back in 2014. According to the European Parliament, turnout reached 51% this year, and that reverses a downward trend that we had seen since 1979. The second biggest point is really, as you mentioned, the grand coalition that we have seen governing the European Parliament over the last 40 years between the Socialists and the Conservative Party has come to an end. And so this suggests that the next European Parliament, in order to pass legislation, will probably need a coalition of four 
parties between the, the Greens, the Liberals, the Socialists and the Conservative Party. And of course, that's going to make passing legislation a much harder task. In this context, yesterday night, I asked Margrethe Vesteyer, currently competition commissioner, how is this going to work? How is this coalition going to choose the next president of the European Commission? Let's take a listen. The first thing is that this means change. And I think this is what Europeans have been asking for. And now with a higher turnout than for a very long time. And that I think is a, it's a sign that people still trust the European democracy to deliver. So that of course is the important part of the parties coming together. We will deliver change. We will do things differently. Are you the person to deliver that change as president of the European Commission? Well, it could be. It's not a given. But uh, if you want something, you got to ask for it. And the worst thing that can happen is that you get to know that will hurt your vanity, at least mine, but I'll live. So Margrethe Vesteyer, they're currently commissioner for competition and of course one of the main names in the race to become the next head of the commission, of the executive arm of the EU. But whoever leads the European Parliament next, whoever leads the European Commission next, for them one of the biggest challenges is going to be Brexit. And yesterday night I also asked Scott Keller, a member of the Green Party, if there is willingness from the European side to change the withdrawal agreement, given that the UK is likely to have a new prime minister in the coming weeks. Let's take a listen. I think about what do they really want to do, because um, the majorities have been tied. Uh, the question of what does the Brexit entail has been very unclear. So I think it's important that the people in Britain decide which way to go forward. So as you can see there from the European side, when it comes to Brexit and changing that withdrawal agreement, is, uh, is there's no appetite for that whatsoever. These European elections, though, are also a reflection about, on national politics. In France, President Emmanuel Macron actually came second. Le Pen's party, Marine Le Pen's party, the far right, actually won the majority of the French seats in the European Parliament. But when it comes to these results, we need to bear in mind that Marine Le Pen also won the election back in 2014, the European election that is, but then she did not win the presidential race in 2017. When it comes to Macron's performance as well, we cannot forget that this was also his first European uh, election. And of course, with the Yellow Vest movement, he has seen a lot of um, uh, a lot of opposition back home that also had an impact in these European results. But that's not, according to different political analysts, that might not have the same uh, impact in a national election. But as I mentioned before, these European elections are indeed a mirror of what happens in national politics. Italy as well last night, some very interesting results there. And right now we have Villa Marx in Turin. Willem, what can you tell us about these European elections in the context of Italian national politics? Well, Sylvia, you have to recommend and remember, of course, that the Italian government is a coalition government. The two main parties in that coalition, the Five Star Movement and the Lega or League Party, they've actually seen a bit of a role reversal overnight in these European elections when you compare the numbers to last year's Italian national elections. Five Star Movement has lost around a third of its voters based on the turnout so far that's been counted. And the Lega Party, meanwhile, has surged. It's essentially doubled its level of national support based on these numbers in just 
the past year. And a lot of that will be attributed to the constant campaigning of Lega leader and Deputy Prime Minister Matteo Salvini. He and his advisers now have to decide whether the level of support they're seeing on the European parliamentary elections, together with potentially parties on the right of centre, like Forza Italia, Silvio Berlusconi's party, and the Brothers of Italy, whether those three parties together could potentially form a governing majority. And they have to decide whether, if that is a possibility, whether they want to potentially collapse the current existing coalition government and call snap elections. Now, Mr Salvini, again last week and again overnight, has insisted that's not something he's looking to do. Here's how he addressed that very thorny question in his victory speech. The allies in our government for me are friends, and from tomorrow we have to go back and work with serenity, lowering the level of conflict. I've never responded over the past few weeks to the attacks. From tomorrow morning, I want to start working on the government pact and work on the pending subjects. If you look at the way that the two parties have been represented across Italy, you can see that the Lega party has done very, very well in the north and the Five Star Movement has done relatively well in the south. It's a very split country as it was during last year's national election. But one major change has been in a city like this one, Turin, where U-Trend seems to be forecasting that there's been incredibly high turnout for the Partito Democratico, the centre-left Democratic Party that formed the previous government here in Italy. They're looking at numbers around 26% based on the latest vote counts, making them the second largest party. And their leader, Nicola Zingaretti, said that this seemed to indicate there was an increased level of fragility inside the government coalition. And of course, that's going to be something that investors and businesses are watching very closely for. That would be a major inflection point if that government did collapse. But regardless, this result for Mr Salvini seems to indicate he will have a lot more leverage when it comes to important issues of policy like taxation. And it seems also to endorse some of the Eurosceptic elements of his platform that he's been constantly harping on about, about uh, difficulties in Brussels and the relationship between Rome and Brussels. He also, important point to note, Jeff, who's in London, I know, listening to this, that both the success of his party here in Italy, the success of Marine Le Pen's party in France, and the success of the Brexit party in the UK, where you are, Jeff, are all indications that Europe is changing. Uh, well, perhaps yes and no, Willem, and, and you know the, the numbers as well as I do, and you understand how the power structures work, and this is uh, what uh, the experts would call a second-order election. So it has relevance and importance. But of course, voters go into the voting booths with different things on their mind than voting in a national government. And of course, that's why you have to look at, uh, at this result and you have to look at the political gains with a certain element of scepticism. And let's then focus here on the UK because uh, we had 37% turnout here, which is the second highest ever for for these parliamentary elections in Europe. So not a bad showing from that perspective. The UK tends to be a little lower, I think, than the EU average, just because you have that deep-seated scepticism here about the process. In terms of the results, uh, clearly the Brexit party lived up to expectations. This is a six-week-old party with Nigel Farage at the helm with a single issue to take the UK out of the EU. They did best 
but it shows you just how divided this country is on the issue that the second-placed party was the Lib Dems, who stand on a platform of Remain. And then it was Labour, and then it was the Greens, and then it was the ruling Conservative Party coming up fifth. So some way down, and, and I've heard from the historians that this is probably the worst showing for the Conservative Party in any election since 1832. So it has been embarrassing for the Conservatives, but we know as the leadership election here takes place for the head of that party with eight potential candidates, the Conservatives have got all sorts of other problems on the books at the moment. But let me just circle back to the parliamentary election result. The Brexit party have clearly dominated 32% of the vote. That gives them the, the largest uh, number of uh, MEPs in terms of a single party here in the UK. And of course, Nigel Farage was triumphant. Let's listen to what he had to say. If there was a second referendum, the Leave side would win again. But the real issue here is we've got a deadline on the 31st of October. All right? That is the date upon which we're supposed to leave the European Union. That's in five months' time. Um, and what we're saying is we've got a mandate now. We demand to be part of that negotiating team to get this country ready to leave, whatever the circumstances. So there you go, a strident Nigel Farage talking about second referendums and the uh, timeline that we have now to October 31st. And of course, um, if you're looking for clarity, if you are in the markets at the moment trying to figure out whether you should be long FTSE or long the pound or short the pound, short the FTSE, I don't think today's uh, election result will give you any clues. It won't help at all. It has not clarified the um, the mess that we currently have in terms of this Brexit process, because whilst it will have been a strong showing for the Brexit party in terms of their ability to affect the ruling Conservative Party's decision making on this issue, it is limited. The Brexit party effectively exists now as, an, as a party of MEPs rather than MPs in the Houses of Parliament which are just over my shoulder here. So let me send it back to uh, Juliana and Karen in the studio for the time being here with that single thought that there are still many paths to Brexit from here. And whilst the Brexit party may now be able to cause trouble in uh, the European Parliament, in terms of uh, determining the timeline, they can do little but try to agitate and throw rocks from the side. Uh, Jeff, thank you. I want to pick up on that point about the market reaction because as we closed out Friday, significant market risk as we saw Theresa May give that heartfelt speech and set out her time frame for leaving number 10. Now we've had European elections and I think there was a clear and present danger in the European elections around the populace having a much stronger showing whether that would have stopped the ability for consensus decision making in the remaining 27 member nations and also whether it would stop the reform process. And I think after what we've seen on we have seen on the weekend, maybe some of that danger has dissipated for now. I think it may come down to country levels. And you've mentioned, obviously, the UK situation. Over the weekend, Greece and Germany are the two countries that jump out to me. I mean, we thought it would be Italy with Salvini, but he's tried to douse some of those concerns around any split in the coalition. But we've had a snap election called in Greece. And in Germany, the uh, dismal showing for the mainstream parties in a swing towards the Greens may put into doubt that grand coalition. So if 
if you're watching the markets this morning, you're trying to play uh, some of the risk game, I would be looking at those two particular countries. Perhaps taking a longer term view, I think what's interesting is the clear support that has uh, increased for the green parties and particularly in the context of France where you think back to what kicked off the Gilets Jaunes movement, it was those increases in fuel taxes uh, and that was part of Macron's vision to become greener. So there is this support for more green policies. Perhaps uh, that is one of the clear initiatives we can look for in the future for European Parliament, but obviously at odds with what that means in practice right now given what we've seen with the but Gilets Jaunes. point, isn't it? Because the French wanted this to take place at the European level, not at the French level. And that's where some of the, uh, the protest has really erupted from. And I think on other big measures too, around digital taxes, a fairer taxation system around global corporations, you may see more momentum for that at a European level now with that strong showing for the Greens and the Liberals, Jeff. I think that uh, what we've now got is just a, a, a situation where the national governments are going to have to be a little more attentive on these issues of um, uh, uh, antipathy towards the EU, on the issues of inequality, on the issues perhaps of um, green technology and the way forward for decarbonisation. Uh, but let's face it, these are, these are just um, pressures rather than uh, clear forces that will change and determine future policy. So uh, Mr. Macron, I, I suspect, was probably very aware that that was the result that he was going to see. Marine Le Pen would put in a very strong showing in France. Will that do any more to change his decision on key policies in this area? I think it's unlikely. I think the yellow vest protests, more than anything else, will have had the most sobering impact on his decision making of late. I mean, what this does do is it it just crystallizes that idea that there is a community of people across the EU who are dissatisfied with the current status quo. And it'll, it'll be down very much to national leaders to try and interpret that as they shape their own domestic policy and as they think about some of the bigger issues like the political direction the EU is headed in. Where is banking union going? What will trade policy with the United States and the rest of the world look like? How do we amend the, um, um, the, 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 the process towards a cleaner, greener uh, EU? All of these things matter, of course, but um, this is only one gentle nudge in that direction. Back to you guys. Uh, Jeff, thank you very much. And speaking of national leaders, looking forward to getting to this Game of Thrones-style leadership battle that's erupted in the UK. What have we got? Rudd versus Boris and Rudd. Hancock versus Hunt. Gove as well. But uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that later in the show. Coming up, the merger talks between two auto heavyweights reportedly speed up as Renault and Fiat look to overtake the competition. are waiting details on a Fiat Chrysler tie-up and uh, we've just had an early statement crossing the wires this morning as uh, 
Fiat Chrysler FCA has submitted a proposal for a transformative merger with Renault. Uh, this is designed to create uh, a stronger group, uh, a preeminent global automotive group is what they're talking about. So uh, the, the latest uh, details are expected to uh, be a significant boost for the European auto market. Um, what we've got, combined business to be 50% owned by FCA shareholders and 50% owned by Group Renault shareholders, a balanced governance structure, and the majority of the board of directors being independent. Uh, the combination would be the third largest global OEM with 8.7 million vehicle sales and a strong market presence in key regions and vehicle segments. A broad and complementary brand portfolio has been touted to provide full market coverage from luxury to mainstream. So it tells you about the type of market they're going after. The combined company, according to this press release, adjusting the wise would be a world leader in rapidly changing automotive industry with a strong position in transforming technologies, including electrification and autonomous driving. No plant closures as a result of the combination. So we've just been talking uh, to Phil about this. He joins us with more live on the phone from Chicago. Phil, come in on this. So we've just got early details being sketched out in this press release. What do you make of what you know and how that matches up with the release? Well, what strikes me about the release here is that it, it pretty much matches with what we've heard uh, from people who have been uh, briefed on the negotiations. Here's what stands out here. This proposal for a merged company, which will be 50% owned by uh, shareholders of Fiat Chrysler, 50% of the shareholders of Renault, then raises the question, what does Renault do with its partnership with Nissan and Mitsubishi. Uh, as I read through this release, I see nothing in here regarding, does that dissolve? Does Nissan, uh, does Renault then say, we want out of that partnership? Um, and it's not as simple as simply saying, we want out of that partnership. Remember, they own 35% uh, of Nissan and Nissan owns 15% of Renault. So that is a complicating factor here that I think people are going to be focused on and saying, well, this sounds like a great partnership here between Fiat Chrysler and Renault, but what's Renault going to do with that partnership with uh, Nissan and Mitsubishi? Bill, I want to ask you about another uh, factor that could complicate things. Earlier this year, there were reports that Peugeot was interested in Fiat Chrysler. Do you think that what we see here, this Fiat Chrysler-Renault uh, deal, is the end, uh, end game? Or do you see Peugeot potentially coming into the picture? And this is just the first step of what could turn into uh, a more complex three-way uh, deal battle. I don't see a three-way deal battle uh, developing, and I'm not sure I see a bidding war developing either. Uh, my understanding is that the discussions between uh, Fiat Chrysler and Peugeot, uh, while they were substantial, I don't think they ever released, reached the point of being advanced to where uh, Fiat Chrysler said, look, we think we can make a deal here with Peugeot. And, and that's not to say that there was something wrong with Peugeot. I just think that ultimately Fiat Chrysler, when they looked at their options, uh, felt like Renault is a, a better route is they look to strengthen um, the possibilities for um, having the synergies they need uh, to make a, a bigger dent in uh, global auto production. Just on that note around synergies, you know, 5 billion euros touted uh, in savings for the existing, incrementally they say, to the existing Renault-Nissan-Mitsubishi alliance. 
Given you've covered autos for so long, how hard is it to extract those types of synergies, particularly in an environment where there are huge, huge R&D requirements at this point in the cycle? Oh, it's incredibly tough. Incredibly tough. And, and one of the things that you often hear about when you hear about two automakers working together, let's say it's for engine development, they will talk about, well, we are going to ring out X amount of dollars or X amount of euros uh, by working together. And if you look at historically, if you go back and you look at those agreements, they rarely de um, deliver the amount of benefit that the automakers uh, say that they will deliver. Um, that's not to say that they're overstating it in this case. Um, it just, it's incredibly difficult um, to wring out those costs as much as automakers and as companies would like to. Um, it doesn't mean that this isn't a substantial uh, opportunity here for both Fiat Chrysler and for Renault. It just means that if $5 billion is, is going to be, or 5 billion in euros is going to be incredibly difficult um, to, uh, to achieve. But, uh, They've got a shot at it. I mean, you've got two management teams here who are hell-bent on making sure that they can grow profit margins in an industry that is under pressure. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.